Kathleen Rogers is the president of EarthDay.org. Under her leadership, it has grown into a global, year-round policy and activist organization with an international staff. She has been at the vanguard of developing campaigns and programs focused on diversifying the environmental movement, highlighted by Campaign for Communities and Billion Acts of Green. Prior to her work at EarthDay.org, Kathleen held senior positions with the National Audubon Society, the Environmental Law Institute, and two U.S. Olympic organizing committees. She's a graduate of the University of California at Davis School of Law, where she served as editor-in-chief of the Law Review and clerked in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. Kathleen Rogers, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. So Lovely I'm, to be here. Thank you. I'm, I'm so excited to learn more about EarthDay.org's uh, initiatives. And there's so many more recent ones like the Climate Literacy or the Canopy Project. But, you know, before we go into the, the details of those specific exciting projects, just tell us a little bit about EarthDay's history and your path to becoming president of EarthDay.org. The history of Earth Day is pretty remarkable. We had, at that point, back in 1970, 150 years of industrial development, and the net result was massive amounts of pollution in the U.S. and other, at that point, fairly developed countries. So it wasn't the same for the rest of the world. So what India is going through now or other parts of the world that are in the process of developing is similar to what we were experiencing and without the kind of information that we didn't have back then. So in about the late 60s, we had a number of massively reported environmental disasters. Some of our rivers were on fire. We had something called the Santa Barbara oil spill, which was this pristine part of the California coast that was covered with oil. Although in retrospect, it wasn't much oil compared to say the Exxon Valdez or some of the other major oil spills that have happened since then. But at the time, it was really frightening to people. And there began to develop this sort of environmental ethic. And by that, I mean, there had always been people interested in national parks. Think back to Teddy Roosevelt's day, one of our earlier presidents. But the consciousness around health, the opportunity and the obligation that governments were supposed to have to take care of things that Americans were concerned about. And so while that was all evolving and A number of other tragedies took place around toxic exposure to children that resulted in birth defects. And the list kind of goes on and on. There was a level of consciousness that was being raised even in the U.S. Senate, not at the time known for environmentalism. And in particular, one youngish senator, Gaylord Nelson, began to talk about it even in the early 60s. And as things progressed, he became more and more concerned. And so He came up with an idea to do an environmental teach-in on college campuses because at the time, we also had the civil rights movement going on. We had the Vietnam War. These were incredibly difficult issues facing the American public. And on top of that, we had these environmental crises. So if you can imagine this, a giant civil rights movement, a war that was insanely unpopular among college kids, all of whom were protesting or many of whom were, colleges were being shut down. And Gaylord Nelson proposed to do this teaching on college campuses to take, because he was interested in and concerned about how students would react. And he looked to them to be the population that might actually do something. Then he hired a young organizer named Dennis Hayes, who 
decided that really it was something that all Americans should join into. And together they named it Earth Day, which if you can imagine back then was instantly popular. The net result was 20 million people came out on the streets. It remains the largest civic day of action in human history. There's no other country, no other world that ever had 20 million people coming out on the streets around a single issue. That was on April 22nd, 1970. And right after that, it became apparent with that many people that Congress and state legislators had to do something about it because, frankly, they were afraid of that many people all speaking in one voice. So you saw the quick succession of environmental laws around clean air, clean water, and environmental education, other laws and regulatory changes. And it was like a honeymoon phase for the environmental community, which by the way, was really tiny. There were organizations that had just a couple hundred members that now have memberships in a million or above. So it was a brand new movement. And in addition to that, you had things like the Apollo missions and you had other missions that began to show the earth in its entirety from space. So in 1968, right around December, right before Christmas in the United States, you could see these incredible photos, the first ones ever of the earth from space. And all of that was incredibly inspirational. So civil rights movement, college unrest, Earth Day, all of this was happening over a very short period of time. And out of that, earthday.org, my organization was born. I didn't arrive there till much later, but it was in its infancy, mostly focused on building the environmental movement. And to a certain extent, it is very much still part of our DNA, but we had fewer year-round programs and we had a great emphasis on Earth Day as a day of reckoning each year. And then over the course of the next couple of decades, it became year-round, it went international, became very much focused in addition to building the environmental movement around Earth Day to keep it engaged. And so this organization now works obviously 365 days a year, Part of our staff are devoted to keeping the Earth Day movement alive and then continuing to bring people into the movement. And others on the staff are focused on year-round programs, which we'll talk about later, but really are about taking advantage of the new technologies, taking advantage of new interests, taking advantage of new information, and beginning that really deliberative, intense process of educating people. For example, a few years ago, plastics was our theme. And believe it or not, a few years ago, plastics was not at the top of the heap in terms of issues that the American people or people around the world were worried about. And at this point, we're in 192 countries with about a billion people participating. And so we take advantage of that bully pulpit during sort of January to May when the press is calling us and people are interested in us to really educate people about critical issues that may be coming up at multilateral level, like UN or other multilateral institutions, or maybe really a critical moment in time for scientists. For example, in I think it was 2015, we ran March for Science or 2016 in the United States and in a number of other countries. And our whole goal there was to promote science because we were being attacked institutionally and our scientists were being attacked. So we tend to take for Earth Day, issues that are really big at the moment and using that moment of Earth Day to really educate people. So the organization sort of split some staff working year round on 
specific policy and other issues, legislative issues, while others are focused really on movement building and bringing environmental messages and education to the broadest number of people. When I got there 18 years ago, I changed the mission of the organization. And I think this is really important because the environmental movement was largely old and white in the United States. But when I was dealing with people around the world, it was certainly not that at all. And so I I changed the mission of the organization with the agreement of the board of directors to diversifying the environmental movement worldwide. And so a very heavy focus of Earth Day is on bringing diversity to the movement and emanating from that is a desire to focus on low-income communities and environmental justice. So those are the issues. And we've been in it a lot longer than most people have. We were the first organization to focus on diversity as a goal or objective. And it's allowed us to grow the movement exponentially. And so you're seeing organizations after Earth Day each year popping up, needing nurturing and care and capacity building, but really springing up out of those first baby steps when they come into the movement through Earth Day. I think it's been a huge inspiration to see what you have done and your organizational capacity, because I've been speaking just recently with farmers groups in India or in Africa, and just to see what you've done, that really gives them a model. And then I know you give support in other ways. But speak a little bit about your own background. You spoke about before you came to EarthDay.org, you've been involved in shaping legislation. Just tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I mean, my road to this position was quite winding. Let's put it that way. I lived in Europe and I've studied there. I've lived in Africa. I've lived in other communities around the world doing a whole bunch of different things. I think I was always interested in what I'll call sort of justice and just generally feeling like probably you do and many other people that are listening to this podcast as if we all have little super people capes on our back, where our general way of looking at the world is we have to step in and help people. So I've worked for a variety of institutions before I went off to law school. And in fact, I even owned a bakery for a short period of time and learned how to bake. So unfortunately, I can only bake for like 3000 people because that was about the size of my town. But I've done a lot of different things. And I even tried out for the U.S. Luge team in the Lake Placid, New York, and thankfully didn't make it or I wouldn't be on the phone today because I was really terrible at it. But once I got to law school and left law school, I did a clerkship for a federal judge in D.C. in the D.C. Circuit, D.C. District Courts. And it was through that experience that I decided that I wanted to work in environmental law. So I first went to a law firm. And while it's a perfectly good law firm, their clients were... Now, this is in 1990. So at that point, corporations really hadn't gotten with the program. And so most of my clients, their mission in life, at least with respect to to my job, was to avoid penalties, to obfuscate, to hide what was going on, to take advantage of loopholes in the law. And after a while doing that, I suddenly thought, "I, I can't do this anymore. I can't support companies that are going to look for ways to avoid taking care of the public that they sell things to or make money from. And and that was the lay of the land. Now it's gotten better, but at the time it was really too much to take. And I have lots of horror stories about the clients that I worked for, not because they were doing something illegal, but they were always interested in going as far as the law would allow them to do. And I even started a small criminal defense practice for environmental crimes, which I found 
really interesting and also kind of sealed my fate in terms of moving on to the not-for-profit world because I recognized when you're defending environmental criminals, the most important thing for a company is to make sure the people at the bottom of the rung, the ones who dump the chemicals in the rivers or do something illegal, they're the ones who pay for it, even though they may have tacitly, implicitly, or otherwise given those employees the permission to do so. And so I began to see this incredible corporate imbalance, even for those poor people that had been arrested for doing environmental crimes, really because the companies allowed them to do so, even if it wasn't explicit. So that was the last straw for me. And I moved over to National Audubon and co-managed the litigation department there with an incredible guy who taught me a lot named John Echevarria. And I also worked on migratory birds, which was, of course, National Audubon's main interest. And I learned exponentially more in a year than I had learned my whole time in a law firm, because when you're in a not-for-profit, it's definitely sink or swim. You have to do everything from learn every law and regulation yourself, because there's nobody helping you, really. And you have to deal with the general public. You have to raise money. You have to deal with the board of directors. And so you have all these interests coming at you at once. But at the end of the day, everybody who I interacted with was interested in the very lofty goal of protecting wildlife species, birds and other species. I worked on all sorts of things like reintroduction of the wolves into Yellowstone and was involved in litigation there. These are incredibly difficult jobs. And while I'm not still an environmental lawyer per se, because I've stopped doing litigation, these are among some of the most amazing people in the world who devote their lives every day to building a stronger, better regulatory scheme and laws. And so I really admire the lawyers in my business. And I used to be one focused almost exclusively on that. So I've learned a lot. But at the same time, I also recognize that for every case that came to me at National Audubon, there were 50 other really valuable cases. And nobody had the time or the money to take them on because there were so many. And from that, I also learned that the best thing we can do as a community, and in part why I moved to Earth Day, was because I recognized that if you don't diversify the movement, if you don't give low-income communities or marginalized communities or other people the skills that they need to take on governments, to take on their mayors, to take on corporations, then no way could the handful of great environmental law firms ever take care of every single thing. And so when I moved to Earth Day and changed the mission to diversifying the environmental movement, we also began to focus on how do we give them the skills that they need to become just as competent or close to as competent as the environmental law firms like NRDC and Environmental Defense Fund and National Audubon, who had great lawyers who were in the field. And so now I've moved kind of dramatically to expand the reach of legal protections for your average person. And to do that, because we don't have a major law firm, our organization is really focused on bringing education, capacity building, training to low-income marginalized communities so they can take care of themselves. For every lawsuit you can bring, there are literally tens of thousands that could be brought. So I've taken a very different tact 
building a giant movement sometimes feels like a balloon that's going to burst because in a lot of ways you can't possibly give everybody the deep skill training that you need. And one of my deep beliefs is that funders and other people that are working to support the environmental community should be heavily focused on giving dollars to local communities because 99 times out of 100, they will be competent and interested and be able to direct their energies towards a solution that will take care of the problem of having too many cases, too many issues, and not enough lawyers and environmentalists helping out. So the philosophy of Earth Day is very much about building a big movement, making sure it's diverse, constantly improving the ways that people access information, have access to mechanisms for legal relief. And it's very different because we're not in the courtroom, but it is still really rewarding and really important for all the reasons that I just gave you. I think that's so important. Um, And that's true because we are empowering them. They're giving them the knowledge and then showing them how they might implement it. And also, as you say, because it's in their backyard, these local groups, so they'll know the way that works best for their, instead of the macro view is wonderful. As you say, the, the view from outer space and you see the whole planet, but they know locally. And I certainly love working with students too, because you never know where those solutions come from. Sometimes you're a long time in it, as you know, and then someone comes with fresh eyes and they can see this is another way we can do it and it might be more efficient too. So I wanted to speak about and learn about the climate literacy program and how you work with teachers and students. I wish I'd had something like that when I was growing up. I had great teachers, but we didn't have something like climate literacy. And I want to help spread the word for that and just understand how that can work in classrooms. Yeah, so it is a very difficult subject, and I'll tell you why. Most countries, and we did a World Bank study on quite a number of countries that I think represented the 195, whatever there are, 200 countries that are left on Earth. The number seems to grow and shrink and change depending on politics, but climate education, climate literacy, environmental education, civic engagement, skill building they really have never been front and center of the education business. And even though the first major law that Richard Nixon, who was president at the time of the first Earth Day, signed was the National Environmental Education Act, our study of the U.S. and other countries kind of demonstrate that environmental education is an add-on, climate literacy is an add-on. And so we began a campaign, gosh, it's been many decades, even way before I came, to change that. And for the most part, until recently, that concern our lobbying, whether it was in the United States or around the world, has kind of fallen on deaf ears. And so you have pretty inadequate environment and climate literacy objectives and criteria that schools use. And not a single country in the world makes probably one of the most important skills you'll ever have, which is understanding the planet. A requirement to get out of high school. And so our campaign is focused on two levels. At the global level, we're focused on asking all the countries that are signatories to the climate agreement to agree to assessed compulsory environment and climate literacy education, as well as civic skill building. So going back to what I was saying before, how do you engage communities? Well, my kids are just not studying civics. They're just not being taught of the difference between governments. How do you request information? Nobody graduates from our high schools in the U.S. or any other high schools around the world 
having those skills. And so we've combined climate literacy, our climate literacy objectives, which is to be assessed in order to get out of high school, along with civic skill training, because we believe that's the magic combination to build a broader, more diverse, more active, more successful environmental movement. Now, we're approaching it on two levels. The climate agreement, the Paris Accord, requires countries to come up with solutions to education. But it's up to each country to decide what they want to do. So what we did was sort of attack it from the top down. And we're hoping that coming out of the next meeting of all the parties to Paris, we will see some changes. And we're hoping that the countries will adopt by resolution this assessed perspective on climate literacy so that every country will begin to demand that their students graduate from uh, high school. And not just in the science department, but we want climate education taught the same way technology is taught, which means starting in kindergarten, whether you're learning to read or taking art or science or history, whatever you're doing, math, you're constantly integrating themes, words, concepts into education. So it's teachers call, I'm not a teacher, but they call it crosswalking, which means they integrate it across all subjects. So if you're taking a math class, it'll talk about multiplication in terms of pounds of CO2. And by teaching them those terms and integrating this across all subjects, you begin to have super educated kids on the issue, just like they do with science and technology. That's how they teach it. So we're doing the same thing. And we're hoping to have an agreement by all the parties coming out of this next meeting in Glasgow in late November next year, or certainly by the next one. It's a difficult road to hoe, so to speak, because it is one area that is not considered as important as, say, fossil fuel reduction. But we honestly believe in our core, it's been 51 years since Earth Day. We've had multiple generations graduating from high school around the world without this requirement. And if anybody wonders why our movement isn't bigger or stronger or more powerful, it's because we don't teach it. We don't teach it anywhere. And we also don't teach kids how to be entrepreneurs around the environment. So if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, the country was crazy in the late 1800s and early 1900s teaching science and math. And millions of dollars were going into states to teach kids how to create things out of their garages. So you have some of the major inventions, well, most of them actually, coming out of the Industrial Revolution, which were done by people in their homes. There weren't big labs. And you see that in the tech world now. Those Silicon Valley billionaires, a lot of them started in their houses or literally their garages or working with friends. And it's kind of a legend. And the same thing's going to happen with the Green Revolution. But one thing's for sure, and this is also central to the mission of Earth Day, is unlike the tech movement, which is owned by what, six companies? We know that the Green Revolution can be owned by everybody and distribute that wealth across all countries, including countries that are lesser developed or are soon to become energy independent. There's no reason why Botswana or Nicaragua or take any country can't be making their own solar panels. But right now you've got the big tech companies moving into the whole green space and pretty soon they're gonna own it. They're gonna own all the technology that powers your home, and they're going to own all the technology that relates to manufacturing. And a handful of people are going to own the whole thing again. And let me say the energy economy, it dwarfs the technology revolution. It is so much bigger. And it requires us to rethink everything. 
including the plastics that are on our computers and how we eat and transport food, how we grow the plants that make our clothes. This is an opportunity for everybody and not just a handful of people who live in Silicon Valley or some other tech center. And so part of what we're driving home with countries around the world is that if they educate their kids, they can own their own green economy and they don't have to give it over to a handful of major tech companies who will once again own the means of production, own the economy, and leaving the leftover for poor communities. We want to see that wealth distributed across the world. And energy is different than building a computer because you can create it, manage it, distribute it, control it, and make money from it, and all of the things that go with it right in a community. And that's the beauty of distributed energy. It's the beauty of local road building. As long as you're doing everything yourself, you can find those supplies, you can trade in those minerals, and you can start to create an economy that you own on a local and national level and not leave it to a handful of companies. So deep in the heart of our climate environmental literacy campaign are jobs and owning your own economic future. And so we have been able to engage not just teachers in the climate environmental literacy campaign, like big unions. We have Education International, which represents 34 million teachers. We have U.S. unions. We have many other people. We've also brought in regular unions, business unions. So some of our bigger unions are starting to join this campaign because they know if they want the jobs of the future, they have to be educated. And so too with universities. If they want kids coming into their universities and they want R&D dollars around the green economy, They need to have that ever-growing group of graduates coming into colleges, universities, community colleges that understand it, that are built to create and make a difference in the world and to make money, which will only benefit our university system, again, from the community level all the way up to the most prestigious schools. Again, we want that distributed across all universities and colleges and community colleges because everybody needs to own a piece of this green economy. So at the heart of climate literacy is the need to develop local, national jobs. And again, an energized citizenry that can take governments and corporations to tasks. So it has those four goals, basically, building a green consumer movement, building a green jobs-ready workforce, building an educated electorate, and building a very active citizenry at the local level. So it has all of those components built into the strategy And knock on wood, we are making some progress. I'm so excited to hear that. And I love how you're integrating it into different elements of the educational system, because then, as you say, if you're learning math or you're learning other things, when you can attach it to something tangible, that's when the long-term memory, and that's what, you know, so many students say to me, they wondered what they were learning for years or why they were learning it. It didn't have a context. And I'm just wondering, in terms of the legislative level, because you're saying you don't want it in the handful of just a few tech companies, what are some of the safeguards? I'll give you an example. Let's say you're putting together a legislative package. Pick any country. There are a couple of countries that are very difficult to work in, and it's kind of a command and control. And for the most part, if you're putting together the concept that you want a climate literate population and you want to create a piece of legislation or regulation around that. What we did in the United States and we're starting to do with all our partners around the world is not just addressing the issue of climate education, but we're also putting pieces together in legislation that would require the governments 
to fund green jobs education. So let's say you have a bunch of coal workers in West Virginia, and I don't know, there's hardly anybody left in the coal industry, but let's say the 45,000 people that are still in the coal industry, they don't wanna lose their jobs. They've been doing it for centuries. It's part of their culture, but they see the handwriting on the wall. Our goal is to educate those kids, but also put money in the package of the legislation that we're working on to train workers who are currently in jobs, but need for other reasons to move on to different kinds of jobs. So at the heart of the education is not just in the K through 12 classroom, you know, primary school and secondary school, but it's also in jobs training. So we've put together legislation for a number of countries that includes money for research and development at the university level. It includes retooling workforces that are currently in industries that are going to eventually go out of business. It's training workers who may not be going on to universities. Let's face it, quite a number of people, 80% of the world doesn't go on to great universities in the world, but they still deserve and will be incredibly competent in these high paying jobs that don't require a university degree, but they need to be trained. So we look at education very broadly. So it's K through 12, jobs training, research and development for universities, and it's pretty comprehensive look at how you move an entire population to build a green economy. So it's not just talking about climate education or civic skill building and graduating everybody and then doing nothing. It's really also about transitioning economies from business as usual to something greener along that pathway. That's how we got the unions on board because they know they have lots of union workers who are in industries that probably either will drastically change or evaporate. So they want those sorts of training dollars. And we believe in our heart of hearts that that's also a central education goal. My name is Yujin Lee, a sophomore at Johns Hopkins University, majoring in environmental studies and economics. I'm an environmental journalist and curator at One Planet Podcast and The Creative Process. As an international student born and living in Korea, learning about collaborative global organizations like EarthDay.org is incredibly inspiring for me. I found it interesting when Kathleen Rogers said that climate education should be executed the same way technology is taught in schools. That is to say, from kindergarten onwards, students should be able to integrate different themes and subjects. I really believe that this is a critical point because climate change and other environmental issues are extremely multifaceted. They touch on diverse disciplines, including economics, social equity, globalization, and of course, education. Through my coursework as an environmental studies major, I've come across how climate change affects not only the global economy, but also decreases the Earth's biodiversity and causes social conflicts. Therefore, I believe the youth should be educated about all these different aspects of climate change to fully understand how it affects our everyday lives. Moreover, they should be motivated to contemplate how we should manage climate change without terminating current commercial activities. Education is the key to making all generations conscious global citizens who not only grasp the negative impact of climate change, but can suggest ways to mitigate it while securing our future. 
Growing up in Korea, where there's a plethora of beautiful and unique sceneries, and seeing what is happening around the world in my lifetime, awakened my desire to be part of the solution and help preserve and protect the natural world. I was born and raised in an island that's located just below the Korean peninsula. Therefore, I have a lot of good memories of going to the beach with my family and friends. Going to the beach was something that I've done since I was young, so oftentimes it feels like it's embedded in my life and will be there forever. However, I know that being able to see and go to the beach whenever I want to isn't something that everyone can do in their lifetime. I realize that it's my privilege that I can feel the fresh air and soothing sound that only the beach can provide. I loved going to the beach since I was young as it always clears my mind whenever I have heavy concerns or just a lot of overwhelming things going on in my life. It has always been my special healing place. I don't want to lose it and I hope future generations can feel the same joy and peace that I feel whenever I go to the beach. I don't want it to be polluted by plastic and trash and eventually lose its beautiful blue color. And I think the beginning of Earth Day also had a collaboration of the unions, the American auto workers. So it helped bring about the legislation with the Clean Air Act. Yeah, and that would be absolutely true in every country. If you have your unions or workers, you have your teachers, you have your students, you have your universities. If you all have them all working together, the trade associations working together to make sure everybody's moving in the same direction towards being educated about the green economy, educated about their right to information and their right to participate in government. You begin to see monumental shifts in and balancing in the world because we know corporations and governments quite often, except through voting, ignore the will of the people. And so having those alliances between companies and teachers and unions and really building broad-based support and control, because the last thing we want to do is educate all these people so they can be tools in some green technology company that's worth trillions and trillions of dollars. Instead, we want to spread the wealth, make it even. And we're seeing this develop in all the other countries. In Italy, for example, they are teaching environment and climate literacy out of their civics department, not out of their science department, but out of their civics department. That changes everything because at the heart of every lesson they have is, okay, here's something bad that's happening. Here's something positive that could happen. How do we get control of that? What are the skills we need to participate in government? So it's a whole new way. And really I applaud Italy and a couple other countries are doing this too, in teaching civics hand in glove with climate literacy, entrepreneurism, and the jobs of the future. It's a really comprehensive look at how you can build a whole new thing. And the consequences of not doing it, I think any country that doesn't do it is facing a national liability because without that kind of broad-based education and mixing all these components together, which makes sense when you lay it all out in legislation, it's kind of a recipe for an uneven approach to the green economy. And our goal is to move it along with a broad base of support across the spectrum of educational levels, socioeconomic backgrounds, and other kinds of cultural issues to build an integrated green society. 
And to do that, you need to have all these players working at once. And to the extent we're able to get it at the global level through the Paris Accord, we'll do that. If we can get it by going from the ground up, we'll do it that way. Because every country is different on how they approach education. Some countries, it's totally top down. And the federal government decides everything and writes the books and distributes the books. In the United States, we have 50 different states. They all do their own thing. And let me tell you, when I say they do their own thing, I'm not kidding. We have a number of states that have taken climate change entirely. The words are stricken from the book. It's sort of a joke, but these are in states that could really stand to have some of that new generation of green jobs. But their belief, political, cultural, whatever it is, forces them into the corner. And we're trying to make sure that we give them a pathway out of that corner because talking about jobs and the next generation of kids and making sure that those jobs are healthy, safe, build community spirit, all of those things. The whole green economy can be part of that, particularly if it's distributed across all socioeconomic strata in each country. Tell us more about, you said each Earth Day has a different theme and restore our Earth. Yeah, it's kind of funny. And looking back, I guess it's not funny, but ironic in a way. We decided on the theme, restore our Earth, before anybody had heard anything about COVID-19. And it wasn't as if we were soothsayers or precinct or whatever. We just thought that the earth was in such a perilous state that we should look at ways you can restore it while you're lowering the fossil fuel consumption and burning. We know that that's not going to be good enough. So our campaign, which has lots of subsets, is largely focused around educating people on how climate change can be solved through a combination of using natural systems, whether it's reforestation or ecosystem approach, regenerative agriculture, using the soils as a way to store carbon and also to grow better food. And it allows you to avoid mechanized farming. It gets rid of fertilizers, all sorts of things. That's a very hot topic right now. And whether you use the natural systems or technology, which I think is going to be a critical part of how we reach equilibrium on the carbon issue. Because even if you stop burning fossil fuels today, completely, utterly stop, you have hundred and almost 200 years of fossil fuels up in the atmosphere. And that will act as a giant heat screen against the sun and continue to create the greenhouse gas impacts on the ground. So we have to figure out a way to get that carbon and all of the other chemicals that are up in the atmosphere out of it if we want to solve the climate crisis. So it's not just about ending fossil fuels, which of course is critically important, but it's also carbon removal. And so Restore Earth looks at natural systems for doing that and a little bit on technology. We're not heavily focused on a particular technology, just that if you do it safely and economically, it could be a huge generator of jobs, financial improvements, and take care of that lingering problem that we could have for like the next thousand years. Restore Earth is looking at both natural systems and technologies, a way to mitigate the climate crisis in addition to ending fossil fuel use. And it makes me wonder when you said about local groups and governments taking ownership of different energy solutions, so it's not in the handful of a few tech giants, whether certain energy solutions could be solved most efficiently by a few groups, whether one would go that way. 
Well, all energy is local, right? So when you put energy through power lines, you lose a ton of it, just, just the way it is. It's very difficult to control. A lot of it just dissipates. And so if you build power lines that are traveling really far across your country, that was the old way of doing it. Now there's a new term called distributed energy where you make the energy, you create it, manage it locally. For example, let's take India where they're just in the process of building power lines that just stretch endlessly around that vast country. And they still have a couple hundred million people at least who don't have any energy at all and a couple hundred million people that don't have reliable energy, right? It goes off all the time. It could go off for days or an hour, but it's not consistent. So you have about 400 million people that are experiencing zero, as in when it gets dark, it's dark out. There's no lighting at all to those that are intermittent. And that's true in lots of places in the world. One way you could look at it, rather than build these big power lines where you just have to burn so much energy to move it through the system, which is not efficient at all, the new way of looking at it is to build local sources. So that could be solar, wind, all sorts of different local energies. In some cases, biomass, where you're taking available resources, available wind, available solar, depending on the country, and you're building the local power plants that then distribute the energy very locally. And that way you don't lose much energy in the process. On the other hand, if you're just gonna use the US system, which trust me is so inefficient, you're gonna need twice as much, three times, five times as much energy to get it into the hands of people, into the homes of people, into the businesses and manufacturing plants if you have to send it long distances. The goal is to really focus on creating a new system for generating energy that's, to the extent it's possible, is all about local. And that's one of the ways you can solve part of the climate crisis because you waste so much energy using alternative models. There are other parts of it. Again, how do you restore areas? Whether you're talking about biodiversity or you're talking about soil retention or you're talking about soil erosion or flooding, massively rebuilding our forests Starting from the core of the best forest you have and moving outward is among the best solutions to the climate crisis. And there are huge trillion dollar tree initiatives, a billion tree initiatives, and all of it is an effort to drum up a huge amount of support inside local governments, national governments, philanthropists, corporations to give back to the communities that they have taken advantage of for so long. I mean, we have to do something about Brazil. The Amazon's open for business. It's completely disgraceful. And yet it's their own resource. They own it. We don't own it. It might be the oxygen for the planet, but we don't own it. So you have to figure out creative ways that involve a ton of money so that Brazil and other countries that are clear cutting will have that opportunity to make money, long-term jobs, as well as protect the biodiversity and the forests that we as humans on the planet depend upon. We're in this restructuring financial and otherwise of all of industries. Now we can't really see it. And I don't think you saw it during the industrial revolution either. I think so much was happening in the 1800s. New inventions were coming out every single day. One spawn, the next spawn, the next. And the books on the subject are really remarkable. The same thing is happening now. When you looked at the disaster of the industrial revolution, Think Charles Dickens writing about London or England. His books are so dark. 
It's just nothing, but you get the sense of incredible pollution when you read his book, which by the way, he wasn't writing about. He was writing about poverty and human spirit. But when you read it, you realize the whole place was completely filthy. They didn't have indoor plumbing. No one took showers. They didn't boil their water. I mean, endless things that they cured in a decade. Now, we look back and it all happened during a decade. We're living in one of those decades right now where we can't really see all the things that are changing. But the most important thing is that you have everybody working in concert. So you have governments that are sending the right signals. You have people that are forcing the governments to send the right signals. And you have companies that either read the handwriting on the wall because they see down the road, they might go out of business. All of those things combined have to operate in a way that begins to snowball the effect of moving to a green economy. It's going to happen because we're gonna run out of fossil fuels or people won't be able to take it anymore. And it's so inefficient, it's so dirty. It kills so many people and pollutes so many communities and poisons our children, our babies. It's just horrific. But we don't see it right now the same way somebody 10 years looking back will see it. And I, and you, just you look young, but looking back on your life, I'm sure you've seen so much happen in the last 10 years. So we're living extraordinary progress right now. We don't see it. Now, can you have setbacks? Yes. Four years of a president who not only didn't want to protect the planet, but also actively worked to trash it. Yes, it's a setback. It sent the wrong signals everywhere. You should look at the Paris Agreement. Each year or at a certain point, all the countries are supposed to improve their commitments. In other words, raise their commitments for reducing fossil fuels. This was the year to do it. Nobody did it. Part of it was COVID. Part of it was not seeing the right signals from the major countries. And so we did suffer both nationally and globally from four years of worse than inaction. Trust me. Half the laws that I worked on as a lawyer, from wildlife species to toxics, this mad rush to not just roll it back a little, but destroy it. And in some cases, they did destroy it. And you have to start over. In other cases, you can fix it. But it's a lot of work for a lot of people to do it. And my job right now, and Earth Day's job, is to make sure that populations around the world are also sending the right signals to the governments to give them the backup and I guess I look at it as intestinal fortitude, the guts to step ahead, because right now we're seeing a big global retrenchment. And thankfully, the current president of the United States, Biden, is sending not just the right signals, but he's blowing us all out of the water. The guy's been really active in the last couple of weeks. And so we're really excited that we can make up for lost time, reverse some of the extraordinary damage that's happened, and send everybody around the world, a clear message that not just the U.S., but it's people, it's businesses, it's faith groups, it's anybody who has any influence, it's writers, it's historians, it's artists are all behind this new president and backing up the rest of the world, including those that stepped backwards. Many of them did. You know, the U.S. has to come back into this in a super positive way, and I'm seeing signals that they will. It's so heartening. And another way you're speaking about showing support through voting, education, how students and teachers can step up, and the Food and Environment Program, of course, another way that consumers can show their support for that. I, I love that we can examine our food prints and just tell us about that. 
Yeah. So we have a food prints campaign and the woman who runs it is awesome. She's had huge experience working for the Department of Agriculture and lots of other things. And she lives and breathes this subject. And her program is looking two major things, I think. The first, and this goes back to what Earth Day's specialty is, it is in educating people. Google has done analytical work for us to show how that period around Earth Day can jumpstart conversations. And on plastics, it's the data we got from them, which they put on a chart, is almost ridiculously illustrative of my point, which is you had research on a flat line across Google, you know, going up and down a teeny little bit. And then we announced our campaign on plastics, and there was huge global coverage that Earth Day was going to be about plastics. And then when you got to Earth Day, there was massive, this is all about Google searches, around plastics. And then it started to grow and grow and grow. And everybody's looking for an Earth Day story. So it's not just us. I mean, it wasn't, we can't pat ourselves on the back for everything. Everybody wants an Earth Day story. So they call us and we start talking about plastics. So this year, Restore Our Earth is about restoring equilibrium at the heart of it, restoring our ecosystems. And Regenerative ag is one of those really, it's not like people don't know, didn't know this, but it's just starting to be on everybody's lips, scientists and activists and other people. As we face this ever-increasing global population, just think of it as a chart going up and then the chart coming straight back down, and that's the food productivity. And you're in a real global crisis about how the capacity of our soils. And in order to both feed the world in an economical way. And these giant farms are really destroying the planet, these big mechanized farms that use a lot of fertilizer and they're terrible and they have a lot of lobbying you know, money. And so you see it, it's not just the United States, it's everywhere, these massive growers are taking over. And it's a real problem because the soil that they're growing it in, and they can just move on to the next one until there's nothing left, is being depleted. And so regenerative agriculture is not just about regenerating our soils for now, for us, and growing populations that seem to get bigger every year. It's also about using soil to store carbon, which in turn has a positive impact on food growing. There's a big effort to focus every country on their short-term and long-term growing capacity and how regenerating their soils can actually be part of the climate solution and part of the feeding their people solution. So it's a amazing new area. We also work on reforestation because a lot of what you need to do in agricultural lands is make sure you have that combination of low ground cover and forests so that you have clean water and it's not polluted from runoff. And so there's this balancing act that's part of regenerative ag that we're also working on. The big focus is educating people on this really sounds like narrow little topic, except that we all like to eat. And so it is at the heart, other than breathing, my next big thing is eating. And so teaching people about the importance of organic, importance of regenerating soils, which by the way, is is as important, if not more important than organic. And getting the conversation going about standards, because there really aren't any standards in the regenerative ag world that you can hang your hat on. And so it's about the conversation. It's about encouraging people to understand that our soils, in the next 30 years, we could lose viability in huge percentage, 30, 40, 50% of our soils if we don't get it together. And it's not 
an hysterical statement. It's coming from local farmers who are seeing, think of the Dust Bowl days, think of Ireland and the potato famine. It was all about growing the wrong way and drought and other things that were brought on by your own mistakes and diverting rivers and cutting forests and basically disturbing the ecosystem to the point where it just collapses. And we talk about that in terms of biodiversity all the time, but we've only recently started to talk about it in terms of soil, the dirt, the stuff that we depend on. And so I find this one of the most compelling campaigns we've ever run, but also the genuine need to educate people on this very troubling and concerning scientific problem that we've run into, which is growing and growing and growing for an ever-growing world and finding ourselves with our backs up against the wall. And there's nothing we can do if our soil dies. It takes a generation if you screw it up to bring it back. And we don't have the luxury when you're looking at seven and a half, eight, nine billion people worldwide that you have to feed. Yes. And I wish I knew had more of that experience of like growing up I have an agricultural experience. My husband grew up on a farm and I lived, you mentioned Ireland, so I, I'm part Irish. So I lived there and I remember uh, visiting farms though. And then where there'd be a patch, like a patch of organic soil and another patch, which as you say, is just not, was useless. And the, the birds all went on that patch. They would just not touch the other. So they know instinctively what we have forgotten. That's a great illustration metaphor for exactly where we are. But we have the knowledge, right? We just don't have the education, the power. And it sort of goes back to what I was saying about the mission of Earth Day is educating people, activating them, and having a diverse voice on this. So we're working with big farmland groups, and we're working with Black farmers, and we're working with groups that are left out of the conversation, and they know more than anybody. And so integrating everybody together so there's a clear understanding of not just what the problem is, but what the opportunities are. And then the whole equity issue of driving people off the land as we create larger and larger agricultural operations that, sorry, but they're run by big corporations who care less about the soil that they grow in and acquiring huge numbers of acres and hectares around the world never really engaged in the conversation about how that combination of factors, giant farms, overuse of fertilizers, draining off water from other local communities, that's another big thing, is water diversion for these mega farms. The whole goal is to return some equilibrium to how we grow our food, but getting the conversation going is something that we're good at. So I'm hoping that this year we'll get a lot of feedback on what we're doing in media And we're also backing up candidates in governments around the world who actually understand and appreciate regenerative agricultural practices and the urgency that we employ them. And I've been like extracting a lifetime of experience in this, but I feel it's so important what you can share and what you know. But in terms of your memories of the natural world, you talk about experiences we may have had growing up that other generations might not have you have some memories of nature that you want to preserve and protect for future generations? You know, it's really interesting question. I was talking to someone a lot older than I was, and I was talking about living in Kenya. She was from Kenya. 
And I lived there in 87, 88 in there. And I would go out to the Mara, Masai Mara. I had a lot of friends that worked out there. They were researchers. And I lived in Nairobi, but spent three or four days a week. Part of my job, I was working for the UN Women's Conference, and I was very focused on engaging women farmers and others for my boss. The woman who brought me there and who was supporting my work was the wife of a really important farmer. My job was to introduce her to women in particular who were farming, but that drove me further and further outside of Nairobi, which at the time was kind of wild. But I remember camping out there over and over again in my friends' camps or research stations. I was there during the Great Migration, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. If you haven't seen it, it's almost hard to imagine. But the tragedy is, as I've gone back since then, that was a long time ago, and I was back recently and went out there, and I was out during migration, and they have built it up. I don't blame them, but it was extraordinary. It was like a trickle of animals, and compared to what I saw 30 years before, I was shocked. But interestingly, I was talking to a woman from Kenya who also lived out there and now I think lives in D.C. And she said something to me that I thought was particularly moving and I've not quite gotten over it. She said, compared to what I'd seen, it was nothing. Compared to what she'd seen, it was truly massive. So she was I don't know how old, but she'd grown up in Kenya's in in the 20s and 30s and 40s, right? So she was old. And she said, what I experienced was one-tenth of what she experienced. And we had this conversation largely driven by her amazing philosophy and perspective is that none of us understand what the generation before us saw. And therefore, when I see tens of thousands of birds going overhead, migrating south. I go to the shore a lot to Cape May Point and areas there in New Jersey where they have massive bird migration. And I've been going there since I was a kid. And what I see now, children are stunned by how many birds there are. And I look at it and say, where are all the birds? And then the people who are older than I am look at it and say, this is a disaster. Because while I'm still seeing birds, I can only reflect on what I saw when I was a kid. And people who are older than I am are reflecting on what they saw as kids. And it's hard to convey that information. It is hard when you see kids going, oh, you know, flipping out all the shorebirds or massive numbers are flying south or north, depending on the time of year. It's so impressive, but it's nothing compared to what I saw and is double nothing compared to what my friend saw. The same is true in Africa. The same is true with any wildlife where you have, what What do we have? Less than 100,000 giraffes left. I don't know how many, maybe less than that. And when I was there, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands just in the area of Kenya and Tanzania where I was. And when she was there, there were 10 times that number. While it, it may not shock people when they see lots of giraffes in Kenya, some of the preserves are out in the Mara, it seems like a wasteland to me. And to her, it feels like a moonscape. And it's hard to convey that to subsequent generations of people that what they see may astonish them or impress them or make them environmentalists. 
it's almost all gone. And that's the tragedy that's so hard to convey between generations. And that's what our job is to do that and show people not just what it was, but what it can be again. I think it's something that we all need to be reminded of and just to know the time is is shrinking. But what EarthDay.org does beautifully, not just in April, but all year round and advocacy and activism. I encourage everyone to visit your site, to sign up, to get involved with the local events that are happening. Things change with COVID, but there's something going on locally. Yeah, cleanups are taking place that are really a great stepping stone petition drives, pressuring the new Congress in your community in the U.S., that's great, but we're really global. We have many, many more staff outside the United States than we do inside the United States, and so they're all working really hard on these topics. So I don't know how broad your audience is, but if they're having trouble getting in touch with people on the ground in their local community, they can email us at info at Earth Day, and we'll probably be able to come up with a local group that they can join with. But certainly some of the easier things you can do, even with COVID, like cleanups. We have a great app called Earth Challenge. You can take pictures of air pollution. You just take a picture of the sky, but it measures it. You can take pictures of plastics, which are really helpful. Bees, when the season changes, but if you're in some other countries, there are plenty of bees flying around. So depending on the country, all of these apps, they're called widgets inside Earth Challenge app. And then at the end of the picture-taking process or the identification process, because you can do either, you can sign a petition that's relevant to your own country. And that is, trust me, a labor of love that we do, where we have petitions that are relevant for every country. And I think we have them in like 12 languages, because our whole goal, while we're supporting science and citizen science, our goal is to get lots of people to use it and many more to sign these petitions. Because if governments don't feel the pressure, if corporations don't feel the pressure, they're just gonna be business as usual. That's just how things work. Yes, you can sign the petitions and that information that you collect can be then used for literacy or effectively helping teach the the next generation. So just please explore it. I want to thank you, Kathleen Rogers, for all you and EarthDay.org does to protect our planet, safeguard our future, show us pathways to sustainability so that collectively we can restore our Earth and create a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Eugene Lee. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.